Hi, and welcome back to Reimagine, a podcast from the Skoll Center for Social Entrepreneurship in Oxford, where we meet people who see things differently. We are in the early stages of a sustainability revolution. I'm your host, Peter Drobak. We are already seeing this transformation take place. We have a special episode for you today. Joining us is Nobel Peace Prize winner, former U.S. Vice President, and one of the world's leading climate activists, Al Gore. You press my buttons with that question. In our very first episode of Reimagine, we asked Dr. Paul Farmer to help us take the long view on the coronavirus pandemic. Today, Al Gore does the same for the climate emergency. This sustainability revolution will have the magnitude of the industrial revolution, yet the speed of the digital revolution. This episode will also give you a glimpse into an Oxford classroom. The central idea of Reimagine is to unpack the discovery process for social innovators, reframe problems to reimagine solutions. In Oxford, our MBA students practice this in a program called GoTo. This year, GoTo mobilized the entire business school to work on climate action projects. Our capstone is the GoTo Summit, an event where students share their change ideas with the world. And that's what brought Al Gore to Oxford. So let's dive in. Joining me is Dr. Aoife Brophy Haney. Aoife is a lecturer in innovation and enterprise at the Smith School of Enterprise and the Environment and a colleague here at Said Business School. Aoife is also my partner in teaching Global Opportunities and Threats Oxford, or GoTo, and she's my neighbor. Aoife, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Peter. It's great to be here, just down the road. We're so close, yet so far away. Occasionally, we shout at one another from across the street. How's everything over there? Um, It's not too bad. Yeah, we had a bit of extra time outdoors this weekend, and I think that did us all the world of good. So Yeah. Fresh air has been a blessing through this long, long lockdown. All right, Aoife, let's get into it. Start us off by talking a little bit about what GoTo is. As I mentioned, GoTo stands for Global Opportunities and Threats Oxford. This is kind of a different course. So what is it? And talk about why we chose climate action this year as our theme. Great. Yeah. What we try to do with with GoTo is to teach skills that future leaders are going to to need. They need to be able to think in systems, to be able to tackle the world's big problems. And we've been doing that by choosing a different theme each year. And really, if we cast our minds back to this time last year, it was very clear why we were compelled to, to choose climate as a theme. We saw this momentum really picking up, building from the school strikes, from the Extinction Rebellion protests, And that was all on the back of the International Panel for Climate Change report, the special report back in October 2018, where we found from science that the consequences of going beyond 1.5 degrees of warming are just catastrophic. So we've been getting the students to work on projects related to cities, to energy, to food and to rethinking growth. And um, the really nice thing about GoTo is that it is this team-based course where the students work through the complexity of thinking in in systems together, and they bring their different perspectives in in order to be able to do that in small groups. 
All right. So Aoife, let's come to the GoTo Summit. We made this the year of climate action at the school. Hundreds of students have been working on teams for really about six months on their projects. And in many ways, the GoTo Summit is the culmination of all of that. It's a chance to celebrate everyone's work, to share some of the best ideas with the broader community and with, with the world. And we were so grateful and excited when former Vice President Al Gore agreed to join the summit this year here in Oxford uh, and to speak to students and to, to listen to their projects. And we had planned a big, elaborate ceremony and summit in the Sheldonian Theater, which is this marvelous circular theater built in the late 1600s here in Oxford. And it was going to be the event of the year for the students. And of course, like so many other things, this is something that the pandemic took away from us. And so this is a very different kind of gathering. But it was really important to us to still try to bring that sense of community and excitement and actually to create an opportunity here by making this virtual, we could also open it up to everyone into the world. And if there's a gold medal or a Hall of Fame for Zoom, it might be for this event. We had something like 46 different speakers, uh, videos, slides, streaming on multiple platforms, and all went off without a hitch. Our world has grown to be so dependent on the internet that the stage is set for this to be a global threat because of its carbon emissions currently working towards building an energy system which utilizes 20% renewable energy. This can be increased to 67% in the next This story to me highlighted the twin defining systemic challenges of our century, overcoming poverty and managing climate change. The fashion industry knows that it needs to change and the change goes right to the very heart of the industry, requiring a shift to sustainable fabrics. But how can we get there? So we asked Al Gore to speak not only about the climate crisis and where we are in the trajectory of this fight, but also to put it in context of our current moment and whether there are linkages or differences or particular challenges and opportunities that are posed by the COVID-19 pandemic. One of our colleagues refers to Al Gore as the Goracle. And once you hear what's to come in this episode, you'll understand why. The climate crisis is the, the preeminent challenge of our time. Someone wrote recently that we see people all around the world today walking around and navigating according to the coordinates of a world that no longer exists. It is a challenge for all of us to try to piece together the deeper meaning of the changes that are now underway and to anticipate the fantastic opportunities when we eventually emerge victorious in the challenge presented by COVID-19. I love this idea of wandering around with no coordinates. So much of what's happening right now feels out of our control. It feels like we're engulfed in a bit of chaos. And what system thinking allows us to do is to understand that there actually are a set of forces and principles and rules that are driving the movement of complex systems, but often they're a little bit beneath the surface and we just need a different set of tools to dig and to understand them. Another thing that Al pointed out there that I think is really important is that big change often builds slowly but then happens very quickly, that there are tipping points uh, and it happens suddenly. So things move slow and then they move fast. And that's obviously what's happening right now. And so I wonder whether as this has exposed so much of the fragility of our systems, this is also a moment of opportunity. Um, Aoife, what did you take away from that? 
I think that's that's really critical to me that we have this both and mentality and I think he brings that out very nicely that you know this is a huge crisis it's affecting so many people's lives but it's also a moment where we can think about a new vision for the future I think we also all feel this kind of these tensions in our lives right I mean you know the, the one I feel most often now is this combination of exhausted and energized at the same time. And it's kind of this feeling of, you know, I I want to do so much and I feel that it's a really big moment to do that. But then you come up against kind of this, you know, personal wall of there's only so much I can do as an individual. And so I think that's really where we need to be coming together to be embracing the tensions. And, you know, that's what we teach our students to, to try to do as well. You know, we tell them all the time you need to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. And in that space, that's where you can rethink and reframe and understand kind of connections in, in new ways. We wanted Al to reflect on this moment of intersection between the pandemic and the climate crisis. So we asked him to talk about whether he sees any links between COVID-19 and the climate emergency. Here's what he said. We are seeing in the United States a direct correlation between the higher levels of fossil fuel air pollution and a higher death rate from COVID-19. We see it elsewhere in the world. Uh, There were similar uh, linkages made uh, during the SARS epidemic at the beginning uh, of this millennium. Uh, And a recent uh, study uh, 18 months ago went back and did a fine-grain analysis of the 1918-1919 flu pandemic and correlated uh, the deaths uh, city by city in the United States uh, with a, a very detailed analysis of coal burning in those same cities. And what they found was a 19 to 26 percent increase in the death rate from the 1918-19 flu, uh, with even a moderate increase in coal burning. Let me also say that the issue of environmental uh, injustice is also uh, revealed in stark relief by this COVID-19 tragedy. Uh, We know that uh, all around the world, and I will use examples mainly uh, from the United States, that uh, minority groups, uh, communities of color, uh, low income uh, uh, communities, uh, in the US also Hispanic and native uh, communities, uh, all of whom have been deprived by a legacy of racism and discrimination uh, from the means uh, to defend themselves against the siting of coal burning plants and hazardous waste sites, they are far more likely to live downwind from the smokestacks uh, and and adjacent to the coal ash uh, sites uh, and the hazardous chemical waste sites. As a result, we are seeing uh, a death rate uh, much higher, especially among African-American communities. Today in the state of Georgia, where African-Americans are less than a third of the population, 80% of those who are hospitalized in the state of Georgia are African-Americans. And the death rate from COVID-19 and majority African-American counties is six times higher than the death rate uh, from COVID-19 in majority white counties. We see these these same kinds of uh, results in the UK. An analysis by The Guardian revealed that three London boroughs with high black, Asian, Uh, and other minority populations, Harrow, Brent, and Barnett, 
we're also among the five local authorities with the highest uh, death rates. Uh, so this uh, crisis reveals some of the weaknesses and inequities in our civilization that must be uh, addressed as we come out of this crisis. Now, of course, as I said, unequal access to healthcare, uh, the kinds of jobs that can't be uh, zoomed into, poor housing uh, conditions, the impact of racism itself, which is linked to hypertension and a number of other uh, health disorders, and unequal incomes. Uh, these also contribute to the higher infection and death rates, but this is all linked. And this gives us a, a, an opportunity, even as this is an all-hands-on-deck moment to conquer uh, this uh, a virus, it nevertheless presents us with an opportunity to take a broader look at the much larger challenge of the climate crisis. Two things I think are really important there. The first is this idea of interconnectedness. All the different problems that we've been talking about on this podcast, healthcare inequity, education, homelessness, etc. Whatever problem it is that you're most concerned with, it's connected to so many other things. And climate is certainly a prime example of that. You know, I've worked my entire life in global health and trying to work towards the idea that every child, woman and man on the planet deserves access to healthcare and have learned sometimes the hard way through famine and other crises how deeply the impacts of the climate crisis are going to affect that fight and affect the most vulnerable. And I really appreciated the way um, that Al highlighted the way that this uh, pandemic has exposed um, the inequalities and the fragility and really injustice of our systems and put that on stark display. Uh, Aoife, what did you take away from that? So I loved the connections through people and the effects on people. That's where we can enable change to happen and to accelerate um, much more quickly if we can kind of connect to the to the impacts on people. And we've been doing so in the work that I've been doing recently on energy systems and transitions for energy. We've really been looking at and rethinking how energy systems can enable different outcomes for people and for society. And so it's not just about the energy system, just as you you mentioned, it's not just about healthcare. I mean, these, these systems are very complex in and of themselves, but when we can connect those links between them, um, we can enable new types of um, innovations and new types of thinking that I think will get us much closer to, to achieving some of the sustainable development goals and hopefully faster as well. Mm, let's Let's build on that. You and I have been writing a bit on this and, and specifically on what lessons there are from the COVID-19 pandemic that we can take forward in the fight against uh, the climate emergency. Can you talk a little bit about uh, about that connection? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the thinking we've been doing, we've been trying to make sense of these connections, the the work that we've been doing on climate and and the current kind of crisis. And for climate action in particular, we've really struggled to accelerate action for so long. Let's take some things away from the acceleration that we've seen from businesses responding to, yes, a very different problem, but um, I think a problem that we can learn from in terms of generating fast responses across many different industries and across many different systems. And so we we came together to, to kind of think through, okay, what is it about um, the COVID-19 crisis that is enabling 
enabling businesses to respond and very differently. And we identified these three main elements of people, place and, and partnership that drive businesses to find solutions to things like disruptions in supply chains for PPE, to work together with and across industries in ways that hasn't happened before. So these types of partnerships emerging and the change that we've seen in, in businesses responding um, because of the connection to people and, and immediate impacts, um, I think we can take some of that thinking forward to really accelerate um, climate action. What it really means, and if there's one thing I think we can take away from this, is that we need is a shift away from always being reactive and reactive problem solving and firefighting to being proactive and getting under the surface and understanding and trying to address the root causes. Too often we are treating the symptoms uh, and we need to do is start treating the system. Yeah, and I think it's also, I mean, as you mentioned, we're not aware of many of these systems until something disrupts them. It creates a very powerful moment now that people around the world are very aware of food systems because they realize that, oh, hang on a second, I'm not able to get you know eggs in the supermarket in the same way that I was able to, or flour is just running out and I have to be, you know, I either I have to collaborate with people in my community to be able to make sure that I get access to the things that I just took for granted um, before now. And so I think that as well creates this moment for us to change systems because we can see that they they can be changed and it gives us a glimpse of what might happen in the future with supply chain disruptions that are due to to climate and i think that's where we need to really garner the support of um, the business community to figure out okay how do we prepare in a way that we we didn't prepare for um for the current pandemic and so that's a very powerful message i think for business well, speaking of empty supermarket shelves, no talk of the climate crisis is complete without a doomsday section. Let's go back to Al Gore. We see with the pandemic the extreme danger of ignoring clear, loud warnings from the scientists and the doctors until it's almost too late. Uh, and many uh, deaths and illnesses could have been avoided if those warnings were heeded more quickly. That's the same situation we face with the climate crisis. Uh, scientists have been warning of this uh, looming disaster since Roger Revelle uh, 50 years ago, my uh, mentor. We're using uh, the sky as an open sewer. This, of course, is uh, destabilizing climate, causing the so-called rain bombs that have been inundating uh, the United Kingdom in recent years, including in the first quarter of this year, the wettest uh, on, on record in my country and elsewhere. Last year, uh, 20 million acres of prime farmland in the American Midwest couldn't be planted because of the flooding and the continuing downpours, because we're 93% of that heat energy is going into the oceans, and with apologies to Las Vegas, what happens in the oceans doesn't stay in the oceans. It comes back over the land where most people live uh, in the form of atmospheric rivers that on average are 25 times larger than the Mississippi River, the largest in North America. And when they encounter uh, uh, conditions that release downpours, we get these uh, fantastic deluges that would have occurred in the past once every thousand years, once every 5,000 years, 
Now every night on the television news is like a nature hike through the book of Revelations. Uh, and, and we also see it, it manifested in the deeper and more intense droughts that are interfering with uh, agricultural production as well, with much higher temperatures that are now on the verge of making significant areas of our world in the Middle East and North Africa and the Persian Gulf region and parts of India and China, literally unlivable. And we see the geopolitical consequences already occurring. It's well known that the climate crisis was the principal cause of the Syrian drought from 2006 to 2010, which destroyed 60% of the farms in Syria, killed 80% of the goats and other livestock, and drove all of these refugees into the cities of Syria and then unleashed uh, a million uh, refugees from the Eastern Mediterranean uh, into Europe. And actually the biggest burden was to adjacent countries, but of course with the Western media, we see most of all uh, the geopolitically destabilizing consequences uh, in, in Europe, uh, which have contributed uh, to the rise of this uh, populist authoritarian uh, movement, uh, reawakening uh, the, the lurking uh, desire for strongman government, which is an enemy of uh, representative democracy. We see also the melting of the ice, which is already uh, contributing to a significant increase in the estimates of sea level rise. So the consequences of this crisis uh, are challenging our civilization. So I think really, for me, the the main takeaway from from hearing that is just how amazed I am that he continues to have so much passion to keep trying to wake us up when he's been doing this for so long. He went to Congress to hold the first hearings on climate in 1976. I mean, that's nearly 50 wow. years ago. When you think about how much damage we've done since 1976 and in, in, in our lifetimes, effectively, it's humbling that not a lot of us heeded these warnings uh, for for a very long time. And, you know, for a long time, I think, because of that latency that you talked about earlier, because the effects of our decisions today may not be seen for a period of time, it's easy to sort of not make that connection. And we're all like the proverbial frog that's, you know, boiling slowly in a, in a pot of water. What we've definitely seen over the last couple of years has been a quickening, right? We're seeing more climate-related events that are bringing it to the front of our consciousness. The activism has been so important. And of course, the updates and the signs that we actually need to go further and in less time than we thought before, if we want to get ahead of this. So we, we need to move fast. And this comes back to our notion of how systems change, they move slowly, 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 but then real change often happens quite quickly. And this is, I think, what's really exciting about what Al's about to talk to us about, and that's his notion of a sustainability revolution. Five years ago, electricity from wind and solar was cheaper than electricity from fossil fuels in only 1% of the world. Today, five years later, it's cheaper in two-thirds of the world. And five years from now, the projections are it will be cheaper in just about 100% of the world. Figures were just released two weeks ago showing that in calendar year 2019, if you examine all of the new electricity generation installed worldwide, 72% of it uh, was renewables. 
virtually all of that to solar and wind. Now we are seeing fully depreciated coal plants and gas plants being shut down by utilities and replaced by brand new solar and wind farms. This trend is going to continue. We are in the early stages of a sustainability revolution based on new digital technologies like machine learning and artificial intelligence that are giving executive teams and businesses around the world the ability to manipulate electrons and atoms and molecules and also genes uh, with the same efficiency that the IT companies have already demonstrated uh, in, in their manipulation of bits of information. This sustainability revolution will have the magnitude of the industrial revolution, yet the speed of the digital revolution. We are already seeing this transformation take place. But I want to mention uh, two differences between uh, the COVID-19 pandemic uh, and the climate crisis. Similar, as I said, in our great need to heed the warnings of the scientists, but different in two important respects. The consequences of this pandemic uh, may last uh, six, eight, 12 months, uh, one year, two years, three years, we don't know. Uh, but that's the general range. We're already seeing the emergence of some promising therapeutics. Uh, and hopefully uh, the scientists and uh, uh, doctors will come up with an effective vaccine. But the consequences of the climate crisis will last for centuries. And it's literally unbearable to me and so many hundreds of millions of others to imagine the generation represented by these students and other generations to follow, who at some point in their lives, if we do not succeed in, in facing this climate crisis, would have the opportunity to look back at us in this year 2020 and ask, how in God's name could you have not reacted? How could you have ignored the warnings of the scientists? How could you have ignored Mother Nature, who is now screaming at you uh, with these extreme uh, climate-related events that are almost impossible to, to misinterpret? That is a, a clear difference. Here's a, sec here's a final difference. Uh, I'm sure there are more. Whereas large parts of the global economy have been shut down in order to conquer uh, this virus and are now haltingly reopening, we don't have to shut down economic activity in order to solve the climate crisis. We should shut down the fossil fuel burning plants as soon as possible. But this is the greatest opportunity to create new jobs in the history of the world. Already here in the United States for the last five years, the fastest growing job has been solar installer. The second fastest growing job is wind turbine a technician. Uh, solar jobs are growing five times faster than the average job growth. We have the opportunity to retrofit buildings. If we can simply solve the so-called agent principle divide, which gives uh, incentives to property developers and builders to create buildings at the lowest possible first purchase price and look instead uh, at the incentives that are uh, facing the owners and leasers of those buildings who want lower monthly uh, utility bills and telescope those savings uh, so that we can align those incentives, 
we can create tens of millions, hundreds of millions of jobs retrofitting residential, commercial, and industrial structures with more caulking, more insulation, better windows, LEDs, jobs that cannot be outsourced. So we have an opportunity to create uh, the largest surge of sustainable economic growth in all of history. If we stop navigating according to the coordinates of a world that no longer exists, as I mentioned earlier, and instead start uh, navigating according to the coordinates of the world that is now coming into view. A famous uh, ice hockey player, Wayne Gretzky, famously said once that he skates not to where the puck is, but to where the puck is going to be. Uh, as this pandemic is eventually conquered, we need to take advantage of these unparalleled opportunities. I love that sense of promise and opportunity coming out of this. Sometimes the doom and gloom of looking at the science and, uh, and the impacts of the climate crisis can become overwhelming and, and sometimes disempowering. But the idea, I think we need more talk about what our awesome future could look like if we get this right. And, you know, there have been little hints of that. One of the very few silver linings of the early days of the pandemic has been a glimpse, particularly in, in some of our major cities, of um, what life could look like without so much pollution, for example. But what Al's talking about there, IFA is is a big deal, right? The Industrial Revolution, pretty big deal. The Digital Revolution, transformational. Do you think that what he's talking about and what's to come here with this transition towards a, a sustainable economy rises to that level? Absolutely. I think what I love about what he talks about is he's talking in a very broad way about um, the vision that we need to have. But I think the other component to this is the details, right? So he kind of refers to a lot of details around um, the types of people that need to be working in certain jobs in order to um, make this big revolution happen. And those are the kind of details that we need to understand in order to make this happen and to make it happen fast. And and I think that's what we've been encouraging our students to do as well, is to kind of think very deeply about the interactions in systems, the different um, actors that are working together or are inhibiting change from happening. Um, and then to kind of zoom back out and to think about the bigger picture as well. So to const constantly be doing this kind of from the big picture to the small details. And I think that's what, what Al really kind of brings across in, in his message about the positive vision for the future, that we need to do both. For keen listeners of this podcast, you'll know that for many episodes, we've really been taking this idea of reframing the problem as a, a really critical tool to help reimagine what the future could look like and, and reimagine solutions. And, and, and what that also means is it's about rewriting those coordinates and, as Al said, skating to where the puck is. So easy to talk about, hard to do in practice. Al has now kind of laid out this case here that he makes for a sustainability revolution, but what really needs to change to make that happen? Well, we continued in conversation with Al Gore with several of our students, and one of them, Daniel Halod, asked him just that. Hi, Mr. Gore. How do you think we need to best communicate the strong behavioral changes and sacrifices required to transition to a carbon neutral world and what can we learn about this from the COVID-19 crisis? Thank you. Well, thank you and congratulations uh, to you. And thank you for a great question. 
we need a just transition. Uh, we need to feel gratitude to the coal miners and to all of those who have been a part of producing the, the sources of energy that have led to the creation of this uh, economy that we have uh, inherited. Yes, there are problems. And now that we see them uh, clearly, we have to address them. But they're not the fault of the, of the workers. They're not the fault uh, of those who have devoted their lives to careers uh, in these industries. And we owe them justice in the transition, which means finding uh, good, better uh, jobs for them. So uh, job training uh, is an obvious part of the solution, but we need changes in policy. We also need changes to reform uh, the capitalist system. There are those who are saying that capitalism is the root cause. Well, you know, there are serious problems in the form of capitalism that uh, we have inherited and we need reforms. You know, there's an old saying that if the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem begins to look like a nail. Uh, you could modify that by saying if the only tool we use to recognize value is a price tag, then those things that don't come with price tags attached may begin to seem as if they have no value. Uh, we have to lose that set of blinders uh, and, and instead look at the value of clean air to breathe and clean water to drink and blue skies uh, uh, to marvel at uh, and, and a healthy environment in which to raise our families. And so what do we have today? When GDP goes up, there's a great cheer, but it's accompanied by these vast negative externalities like pollution, a chronic uh, underinvestment in public goods like healthcare and education and mental health care and family uh, supports. We're seeing uh, the depletion of these resources, including the web of diversity with which we share uh, this earth, known as the sixth great extinction now, unfortunately. And we're seeing hyper inequality of a kind that is threatening the survival of both democracy and capitalism around the world. It's been 40 years since there's been any meaningful increase in take-home pay among middle-income families in, in my country. And we're seeing this hyper-inequality in developing as well as developed nations. We have to take all of those defects in our current accounting for value and remedy them and make sure that uh, these new opportunities include abundant new jobs for those who need a just transition. This idea of a just transition is so important because, as, as Al pointed out, so many of these inequities are baked into our systems right now. And if we don't pay attention to them, and if we don't explicitly try to remedy them, they'll just continue to go on. And in the same way that we're seeing the pandemic uh, affect unequally communities of color and poor communities, uh, we know already the impacts of the climate crisis are disproportionately impacting poor communities and poor countries. There's no reason to think that any of the good things we might do would be any different unless we pay attention and do something about it. Aoife, can you talk about what this all means and particularly this notion of redefining value? Yeah, absolutely. I think it, it really comes back to the different connections between different systems again. And I think, you know, this this idea that we need to to be very mindful of the people who have been 
embedded in existing systems and the way systems have worked um, for, for decades. I think that's just absolutely critical. We've seen a lot of resistance to change and transition in energy systems because there are people behind, you know, fossil fuel energy production, and they've based their entire lives in regions that are dependent on coal, for example. And they're not necessarily attached to the idea of dirty coal. They're attached to the idea of making sure that they have the ability to put food on the table for their families. And so I think mm. making sure that we can connect with the worries that different communities have in different places is just absolutely of paramount importance as we kind of take um, our next steps in accelerating action and uh, and trying to make sure that we make these transitions um, good for everybody. I think the other thing that he, he mentioned kind of very briefly towards the end of his remarks there was about the consequences for developing countries as well. Um, so I think that we have an opportunity now, if we kind of get this right, to give low-income countries a different path and to really kind of set up systems in, in ways that will not allow those countries to experience the same problems that we're experiencing in the rest of the world um, and the so-called um, developed economies. And I think there's just so much we can learn from the innovation that's happening in low-income countries right now in response to um, new energy technologies, just providing new ways of, of thinking about um, what do we want our societies and economies to look like and making sure that those kind of systems are set up in ways that are resilient um, to the effects of climate, but they they let us be happier and not just chase growth for the sake of growth. Well said. Well, there's a lot of work to do, and we know that uh, it's going to be largely on the shoulders of the rising generations to, to do so. And we, we've certainly already seen that with the climate activist movement that has grown so powerful around the world over the last couple of years. And our students are among them. And so let's turn back to Al Gore with uh, what was really a rousing call to action, not only for our students, but for young people around the world. I remember uh, as a boy of 13, listening to an American president uh, of that era, John F. Kennedy, when he famously issued his challenge uh, to put a person on the moon and bring him back safely within 10 years. I also remember that more than a few adults in that era thought that was a reckless and unwise uh, pledge, uh, wasting money that could be more usefully uh, spent uh, on other priorities. But eight years and two months later, Neil Armstrong set foot on the moon. And in the moment he did so, there was a great cheer that went up in mission control at NASA's facility in Houston, Texas. Less known is the fact that if you look at the systems engineers in that room that in that moment cheering, their average age was 26, which means their average age when they heard that challenge was 18. And they changed their lives and changed their courses of study, changed their personal priorities, and worked hard to develop the skills and gain the knowledge that would enable them to be a part of successfully meeting that inspiring challenge. That is what Greta Thunberg and all of the other young people who are marching and part of the climate strike are doing. And it's happening all over the world. These changes are not going away. They are getting ever more serious. People are awakening to them. The solutions are ever more available. 
I had a great uh, headmaster whose advice was, uh, we all face the same choice in life over and over again. It's the choice between the hard right and the easy wrong. I have found that to be true uh, on so many occasions uh, in my life. A little voice uh, <laughs> inside your consciousness that says, ah, let's take another look at uh, this. There's something not quite right about that. I have found in my life it is always, let me repeat, always a mistake <laughs> to ignore that little voice. One of the great poets writing in the Spanish language from South America, Antonio Machado, once wrote, traveler, there is no path. You make the path by walking. That's where we are at this extraordinary juncture in, in human history. There's never been a, a moment like this one. Uh, I am optimistic. If you are tempted to be discouraged, uh, do not be. If you have not yet joined in the efforts to mobilize solutions to the climate crisis, what are you waiting for? Uh, this is the challenge of our time. It is the most serious challenge that human civilization has ever confronted. We have the ability to rise above our limitations. We have done it in meeting crises in the past, and we have the ability to do it now. But if you think for one moment that we as human beings do not have the ability to rise above our limitations and do not have the will to change, always remember that the will to change is itself a renewable resource. What was really great about that was that, you know, following this conversation with Al Gore, we heard from, uh, you know, many of our students who have shared their work over the last six months. And it was, you know, this process has been such an amazing kind of grand tour of big problems and big ideas, right? Redesigning national energy grids in West Africa, going upstream to address the kind of sustainability crisis in vast fashion, uh, looking at circular economy approaches approaches to things as obscure as, as fertilizer. I've learned so much and um, in just seeing what an incredible well of talent and passion there is just amongst this group of students. And, and this is exactly what we need to tap into to spark the kind of revolution that Al is talking about. I've got to do a massive shout out to my team. You guys, I think, have demonstrated the type of collaborative behavior that we need from governments, corporations around the world to actually achieve this type of change. And this is for the women who make our clothes and for the people who never get a seat at the table. Aoife, what did you take away from this event? Honestly, I think it was the best event that I've I've been part of in quite some time. And not just virtual event, but just event full stop. And that gives me a lot of hope that through a crisis like this, just like Al said, we, we can rise above and we can find new ways to connect with each other. That really gives me hope to think about our MBAs going out um, with that will to change that, that Al mentioned. And they have this commitment now to, to really deeply understanding the climate crisis. And I think yeah, that gives me a lot of hope.
I've been saying for a long time that social distancing is a terrible term because what we need right now, at least, is a lot more physical distancing, but also much deeper social connection. Uh, and I really felt that with this event as well. Uh, it was awesome to be a part of. And Aoife, I can't thank you enough for being such an amazing partner and for taking the time to join us on the podcast today. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Anytime. Thanks, Peter. My thanks to Aoife Haney and to Al Gore. This is the last proper episode in our first series of Reimagine. We've loved making this podcast for you, and we hope to be back soon for Series 2. In the meantime, watch this space. Next week, we've got a special bonus episode for you, featuring the great Sally Osberg talking with me about social entrepreneurship. Be sure to stay with us by taking a moment right now to subscribe to Reimagine. That way, when new episodes come, you'll be the first to know. Reimagine is a podcast about people who are inventing the future. From the Skoll Center for Social Entrepreneurship at Oxford University's Said Business School. The series is produced by Eve Streeter, and our executive producer is Becky Jacobs for Stable Productions. Original music is by Cy Begg. Our thanks to Joe Fox for pushing us to make this series, to Heather Saunders, Georgia Rafferty, and Daniela Kazan for their marketing wizardry, and to Sarah Hewitt for moving mountains in a pandemic. Do keep in touch with us here at Reimagine. To learn more about the podcast and social entrepreneurship, visit reimaginepodcast.com. You can find me on Twitter at Peter Droback or email me at peter at reimaginepodcast.com. Do you want to see things differently? Listen, review, and subscribe to Reimagine wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, and stay safe.